Hey, it's Carrie here from Wrap Your Head Around Silks. You're listening to the Expecting Aerialist podcast. Real quick, wanted to let you guys know in the show notes, there is a link to register for my free Aerial Silks mini course. For anyone beginner to intermediate, it's 10 chapters of some cool little things and some pieces of advice for you. All you have to do is register to get into the student portal on my website. It is free for you as a gift from me. So just a trigger warning, today is the third podcast in a row where we're really deep diving in a story about loss. So just to let you know before we get started, and today I'm so excited to have Dr. Rebecca Rengi. She is a primary care physician based in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I found her because she's a member of the Arrow Mamas Facebook group. And I was just looking for some, you know, new people that I'd love to talk to. And I wanted to see her perspective. She's an aerial teacher and, you know, she is a DO, which means she is a doctor. And I got more than I was bargaining for because she had... She has such a story for you guys. So without further ado, let's meet Rebecca. Let's talk about your your profession and what you do for your job. I'd love to hear about that because that's going to inform the rest of our conversation. I decided to be an osteopathic doctor when I was pursuing, you know, applying to medical school started deep diving into the philosophy of osteopathic medicine and the differences between allopathic, which is uh, MDs, and then osteopathic, which is a different philosophy of medical school. And when you graduate, you become a DO. Okay. Yeah. Can you please break that down? Because I'm actually a daughter of an MD and I don't know a lot about the other. Osteopathic medicine has been around a long time. At this point, Medical schools in the United States are graduating about 25% of us are DOs. Wow. Okay. The main difference between an osteopath and an allopath is, is the philosophy when we study medicine is a little more holistic, holistic in a whole person approach, not holistic necessarily in a, you know, naturopathic, we're going to treat you all with herbal remedies sort of. Um, We still practice Western evidence-based medicine. Okay. The big differentiating factor is that we learn uh, musculoskeletal techniques that um, give us hands-on diagnosis and treatment tools. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And how long have you been practicing? About seven years in full-spectrum care and then... 10, 10 years total, if you count like residency when you're still technically practicing, but you're being overseen. What was your experience there? And did it, did it at all um, inform you on the motherhood side or the birth side? Like, of course, all of my exposure in medicine helped me prepare for motherhood, you know, even pediatric rotations and taking care of newborns at different points and that kind of thing. So I, you have some idea what to expect, but it's not really, it's not your story until you're in it, you know? <laughs> what, 
when I asked Rebecca to be on the podcast, I did not know a very, a very crucial part of her story. And I'm somewhat glad that I didn't, because I love coming into these conversations from a point of view of curiosity. I'll start with my first pregnancy. My first pregnancy, everything was going along pretty swimmingly through first trimester. We really didn't have any bumps in the road. I was one of the lucky ones without nausea and vomiting. And so I was able to keep teaching all the way through. But then we got to our 20-week ultrasound and had a surprise when they were looking through the anatomy scan, basically that, you know, they're trying to identify all the, all the body parts and everything, do all the measurements. They did not find any kidneys. It's one of the ones you learn about that is just what we would call incompatible with life. So it's called bilateral renal agenesis. Wow. Basically, if the kidneys don't develop, then when you hit second trimester, um, the, the baby is who is filtering the amniotic fluid. Uh, So they're actually like urinating inside of the amniotic sac and they're like filtering the fluid. So they keep the fluid balance there. But if you have no kidneys, then you end up having no fluid. And if you have no fluid in your amniotic sac, then it's a very tight constricted space that the baby's lungs can't develop. Not only do they not have kidneys, which, you know, you can't yeah, without kidneys okay. um, unless you would get dialysis, but uh, you also definitely can't live without lungs. So unfortunately, what happens with these babies is uh, sometimes, well, in the past, before they used to do ultrasound screening all the time, these babies were delivered and then would immediately pass away because they couldn't breathe. Ah. Uh. I live in a state where you have to do something before, I think, 23 weeks. Okay. So I had the choice of having a what's called a D&E procedure. So it's a... It's D-N-E. Like a D-N-E. Yeah. Like a D-N-C, but a little bit different because you're further along. So um, basically, it's a dilation and evacuation. Okay. Sort of like how they help with birth, except uh-huh. helping to clear the products of... Sure. The fetus, yeah. Okay. Makes sense from yeah. a, yeah, uh, from yeah, whatever a mechanical standpoint. Mechanical yeah, mechanical standpoint. Yeah. So, or I could be induced and actually deliver at during second trimester. Obviously, the baby can't live through that and would pass away immediately. Mm-hmm. Or they could let me go until full term and deliver, and then have to immediately say goodbye. I don't know if it's my training in just trying to reduce human suffering, but mm-hmm. I I felt like the least suffering would be option one uh, for both of us. And so that is what we chose to do. You know, we found a doctor that could do an injection basically before the procedure so that mm-hmm. it would stop the heart and it would be uh, basically okay. like, you know, humane euthanasia I had to go under surgery too so like I couldn't I had to be intubated and and like full surgery wow okay do you feel like your medical knowledge was beneficial or did it was it almost too much to know too much Ooh, 
I don't know because I don't know what it's like to live on the other side. Um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I get that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, just, I'm imagining like I don't know. In some cases, you do like okay. I'm just glad I don't know. Really, yeah. you know, I don't know. I always feel like more knowledge is power. Um, but maybe that's maybe that's also my training speaking. So <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, in my second part of my story, I, I would say it was hard to walk that line between being a doctor and being a mom. In this instance, I felt better kind of knowing what to expect. Yeah, I went under anesthesia and went through the surgery. And actually, it was probably more traumatizing for my husband and my sister, because you know how people say that sort of your true emotional self under anesthesia? You mean like when you were like half in, half out and you were talking? Yeah, like when they wake you up after surgery and you're totally out of it. Yeah. It's kind of like being really drunk, you know, and Yeah, no, I've I remember the last time I was I was just bawling, just Aww. emotional. Of course. Well, I yeah, I mean, I think I was crying too and I don't know why. I think I yeah. must have been trying to stay strong uh, right up until they put me under and that didn't last. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you mind if I ask how old you were at that time? No, not at all. Let me do reverse math. So I'm 36 now. And this was January 2019. 33, maybe not quite 34. 2019. That is a lot more recent than I had pictured for some reason. Basically, both stories go like back to back. And unfortunately, what I sort of learned is I did not give myself time to grieve the first loss uh, before (laughs) moving right into the second one. Probably is very common. It was a very weird feeling because I, you know, I went into surgery 20 weeks pregnant and then I came out just like unpregnant. It was like shocking. I cannot imagine, but yes, I can understand the Right. And so I don't, you know, obviously I I knew that my body had changed and that it was going to take a little bit of time, but I didn't really like treat it like a postpartum period. Like you should, you know, when, Mm. (laughs) when getting back to life and I didn't really allow myself that much grieving either. You know, I barely took time off work. I like had the surgery on a Friday and I came back on a Tuesday. Like it was sort of nutty. I, you know, I was teaching Ariel through all of that. I I ended up going to NECA actually for a Nimble Arts uh, teacher training in February and this happened in January. Oh, wow. That was my original plan, like was to go while I was pregnant. I asked ahead of time and I said, hey, you know, I realize I won't be able to do everything, but I, I want to be there and learn. And then when I showed up, you know, I was not pregnant. And I was like, how do I tell them? I wonder if they even remember that they told me, (laughs) you know, that I was going to be pregnant. I had to have that awkward moment of vulnerability, like halfway through the the training. You know, this is why I'm struggling a little bit because like (laughs) my core is just like disconnected at this point. Mm -hmm. Postpartum doing, you know, some of the conditioning stuff, it was just harder, harder than I was anticipating. (laughs) So six months later, you guys decided to give it another try. Yeah. Oh, and I did pelvic floor physical therapy in there too. Because I oh, did. I lovely. actually had more problems rehabbing and going back to Ariel after the first one than I did after like full giving birth. <laughs> or just That's interesting. Kind of weird. I don't, maybe it's what they say. Like people hold a lot of emotion in their <laughs> pelvic floor. You know, I had to go through 
a fair amount of uncomfortable procedures too. Um, Cause even just for the, the D and E, they actually have to like dilate you. That sucks. Does that just mean that they're like opening up your vaginal canal, like way bigger than it wants your, to go? Your cervix. So they're your like cervix. They're like forcing your cervix to dilate so that you can oh God. be wide enough to deliver. And so do they give you like the, the drugs that help soften it and then stretch it manually? Right. Yeah, pretty much. Oh God, this sounds terrible. Yeah, that wasn't very fun. Um, and they don't put you out for that. So <laughs> they gave you like, you know, side attack, the normal stuff to like soften it up. Um, but then they used these little thing called laminaria wooden plugs sort of or reeds and it's really weird that they're made out of like a plant like an actual plant material but the the point of it is that they expand when they get saturated it's like a seaweed reed that expands and it die and it manually dilates your cervix and so it's a it becomes like a tube yeah, and they were placing a bunch of them next to each other. Um, they made me come back twice because they were trying to get it large enough to get, I don't know, like 10 in there or something. Wait, they leave the reeds in there? Yes. Oh my God, how I, I literally learn something new every day. I have no idea. They place them and then they're like, okay, see you later. And then you go home and you're basically in like, you're in like early labor sort of, you know, because you're dilating. So it's like not like a tampon. It's like, it's like short and then they stick it up there. So then it opens up kind of like a, it's, it's crude to say this, but like, you know, those, those ear hole stretchers. Yeah. I even lost what we were talking about in the first place because my mind was so blown about this read situation. So please remind me what they're doing with this procedure. They needed it to be dilated enough for them to do the surgery. This was while I was awake, like the day before. Oh, God. That was the worst part of the procedure. DNE, not DNC. And they don't do this dilation for a DNC. Not that I've ever heard of. Rebecca, um... Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go into the next chapter of the story. And I, again, want to thank you for being so vulnerable and open because this cannot be easy to talk about. I know it's on your Instagram page and you really let the world in, but I think that you're definitely not alone out there. It's just that it's not a very common, like I'd never heard of, of what happened. So we waited about six months and then started trying again. And then I think by about nine months, I was pregnant. Obviously, because of the first one, I was like super nervous. I just, I basically held my breath the entire pregnancy. The anxiety must have been yeah, yeah. off the charts. You know, we had early testing, like extra ultrasounds and genetic screening. We had genetic testing after the first baby, you know, and they told us, you know, it's probably just sporadic. This, this type of formation just happens and there's no reason to believe that it will happen again. So we had some ups and downs. I would say like it was a roller coaster really from the beginning. Mm. Some of the ultrasounds like looked a little like there might be something. They weren't sure. One of my genetic tests came back positive, but then another one came back normal. And then, you know, we had multiple ultrasounds before we got to the 20 week scan, which was the like big anatomy ultrasound, you know, Mm -hmm. and 
uh, when we got to that one, they were like, okay, so we see enough things on here that we're concerned and we need to do an amniocentesis. So I did actually have that done too. Okay. Which is basically a procedure where they insert a large needle into the amniotic fluid and take a sample so that they can look at DNA to try to mm-hmm. to determine if there's something chromosomal going on. And then that came back normal because they were really just looking for like major chromosomal abnormalities and she didn't have any of those. Okay. Then, you know, we progressed. Um, they did know from the ultrasounds that I had that, that she had a heart defect. So we had been referred to get fetal echo where they look like closer with an ultrasound at her heart while she's in utero. Okay. We knew that she had what's called a complete AV canal defect, which is a pretty major heart defect. And it does need to be repaired with surgery, like six to 12 months uh, of life around that time. Wow. Yeah. So we knew that was coming, but at this point, that was all we knew for sure. Um, and so we were like, oh, it's okay. Like, we can deal with this. Like, it's just baby heart surgery. <laughs> Lots of people have to go through that. Everything's fine. And then during the these consults with U of M, uh, we had, you know, another ultrasound and another, like, fetal echo with them when we were meeting the pediatric heart surgeon. And then with further workup at U of M, we had an ultrasound that showed I had almost no amniotic fluid. Huh. Yeah. So like all through second trimester, baby was fine. So we, you know, we had been like reassured about our kidneys. You know, we were worried about our kidneys the whole time. Right. And then all of a sudden, no fluid. And so we're like, oh no, this has to be another kidney problem then. They thought that maybe she had a horseshoe kidney, which it turned out she did, um, which is when just one kidney forms and like both kidneys are connected and it creates kind of like a horseshoe shape. Okay. Apparently was not functioning well um, because I I didn't have hardly any fluid. At this point, you know, we have a sit down with the OB or maternal fetal medicine, which is kind of like the high risk OB. And they're like, okay, this is, this is bad news. We're delivering you bad news. Chances that this baby will live maybe even to the end of this pregnancy, maybe through delivery, maybe only a couple weeks after delivery. So that was a big shock, obviously. Yeah. So at that point, you know, you're kind of, you're just along for the ride. There's not a lot you can do (laughs) at that point. So we had a few consults and, and they sort of gave us options as to how we wanted to proceed with the delivery. Mm, yeah. I wanted to make sure that she had the best chance she was going to get. So I wanted to wait until I was full term uh, for sure. Uh, we did end up deciding to be induced. On top of all of this, she was breech. Oh my God. Yeah. And with no fluid, like there's no chance she's going to flip. I tried. I tried the whole like spinning babies thing uh-huh. Okay, <laughs> at home. Like dude, basically it's like a bunch of inversion exercises. I was like, oh, I got this. Yeah, like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to be upside uh-huh. down. <laughs> uh-huh. um, that didn't work. So she remained upside down. <laughs> 
what did they call it? Complete breach, I think, where she's, she was butt first with her legs like folded oh, up. Oh, wow. So she was like folded in half. It was just so tight in there. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Because basically she didn't have fluid to like move around. In. And so when you don't have fluid, uh, obviously that's not a good thing, but it's not detrimental is it? No, I mean, it can be like, it can give them musculoskeletal problems, you know, just from like being cramped and not being able to like fully form the last bits, you know, but luckily like at that point in third trimester, like all the important bits are pretty much formed. It's just growing bigger. You know, her lungs had already formed because that part was earlier in second trimester. Because I know nothing about this. So it doesn't matter how hydrated you are. It doesn't matter how much water you're drinking. You're just peeing it out. It's not ending up in the amniotic sac. Mm-mm. No, okay. there's nothing I can do. At that point, that amniotic fluid was up to her. Wow. She had to pee it out. Okay. Yeah. You know, all of this bad news was coming right like March 2020. Oh my God, this is terrible. And you don't know what the world, you don't know where the world is going because we've just shut down at that point. Yeah, it was nutty, you know? So like my studio shut down, which was probably a blessing for me. Everything stopped, you know? It was like a weird blessing in disguise that we could be home and like processing this information and not have to see people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And not have to explain it to everybody. And yeah. Yeah. But even my job, we tried to convert a lot to virtual. So, and plus I was pregnant, so I was high risk and they, they were like, okay, you can be exclusively at home. So that was really weird. I've never tried to practice medicine at home, mm-hmm. um, but I was doing all uh, telephone and, and like video calls uh, with my patients and trying to figure that out at home. Um, so I don't know, good, good and bad there, but things slowed down, even work slowed down. I wanted to be able to, like I said, give her the best chance I could. And part of that was I wanted to deliver her I don't want to say naturally because all childbirth is natural, but without medicating much because I didn't want it to disrupt like her, you know, breathing or being like more sedated than normal or anything like that. She wasn't facing the right way. So how did you avoid having a C-section? Because I was kind of rotating with midwives previously before I was like a high risk pregnancy. And then I was seeing the OBs that are in the same practice and just seeing docs. And I kind of like pinpointed an OB that had more experience delivering breach vaginally. And she was very small too. So that was to my advantage. She, part of what we would later find out with her genetic syndrome is that she had growth restrictions that made it a little bit easier to deliver her breach folded over like that. So I told them, you know, this is, I would like to do it vaginally instead of a C-section, especially if this is going to be like a palliative care sort of situation. Cause I want to return to Ariel. I think it'll be easier, you know, if I don't have a C-section and they were like, okay, this is your birth plan. This is what we're going to try to do. All of that went well. Really? Okay. 
in terms of my delivery, it was super smooth. It was weirdly fast for a new time. Like, you know, usually first moms, especially being induced, you know, mm-hmm. I was expecting, Oh, I'm going to be in the hospital for like three days, you yeah. know, like trying to push this baby out. But no, I was admitted at like 7am and then they started meds. They only did like vaginal side attack, four doses, maybe three or four doses and like three or four hours apart. I actually, I had a doula and I was lucky enough that she was going to be allowed to come. Things went so fast that like my husband was not able to text her really in time. And she arrived when I was getting ready to push. (laughs) She felt really bad about that, but it was not her fault. So how long between them giving you some of those meds and then that evening probably I started being medicated at like 8 a.m okay and then started really moving by 8 p.m like I would say I was like active labor like probably if I had to guess like six centimeters or so dilated because it was like a palliative care sort of situation they let me not wear all the monitors all the time okay and they didn't do as many cervical checks I didn't have any cervical checks and I I think I was afraid to ask for one because I was going to be mad if I was only at three or four, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, because things were progressing pretty quick and I wanted to be in the bathtub, you know, the more painful parts. So that is what we did right around the time that I think I went into active labor, labor and was probably six centimeters. Instead of doing a cervical check, I went in the bathtub. I had a lot of hip pain. I don't know if that's normal. It wasn't back labor. It was like deep in my hips. Hmm. Like if it was like drilled into my like psoas muscles. <laughs> so um, my husband, we had done a lot of reading on like breathing techniques and like things he could do to help me. And so he was like squeezing or pushing on my hips to help relieve the pain and like counting my contractions and everything between contractions and he was so busy doing that that like we didn't <laughs> like reach out to the nurse or the doula or whoever <laughs> else we progressed myself all the way into like transitional or like fully dilated in the bathtub wow like in less than 90 minutes wow okay because they said you can only be in the bathtub for 90 minutes and I said okay I'm gonna stay in here my whole 90 minutes I didn't even make it 90 minutes I basically like stood up and was like, whoa, I feel a lot of pressure. <laughs> then we ended up pushing, pushing and not very long either. Cause when they're breached like that, you don't want to spend a lot of time pushing. Cause it, so the baby came out, but first, yeah, wow. mm-hmm. I don't even think I've ever heard of that. Although apparently my sister came out both feet. And then my mom was like, yeah, I just saw both feet come out and the doctor's just yanking. I'm like, oh my God, what was it? 76, 1976. I'm like, oh my God, please don't tell me the story. I know. Well, I mean, they used to deliver all sorts of breeds. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was, that was normal then. And my, my doc was awesome. We didn't end up with the same doc I had planned, but she did great. The one who was there overnight, because I didn't make it as long as we thought we would. So the doc that was supposed to deliver me showed up in the morning and was like, what happened? And I was like, sorry. (laughs) She said it was like 30 seconds from butt to head. Like basically like the butt came out and then she like swept out like one foot at a time and then turned the baby a little bit. And then I pushed out the head. 
Okay. Well, arms, arms were in there. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Legs, arms, then head. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> okay. But this is not a normal pregnancy. So. Right. What, what happened then? Yeah. You know, in the moment, you're just so focused on <laughs> labor. Yeah. When she came out and all was said and done, you know, then we kind of like reassess the situa- situation and. You know, she looked good. She had good um, APGAR scores and, you know, they did some suctioning and that kind of thing, but she had a strong cry and she did, you know, sort of first latch. She she never was able to fully latch um, because she ended up having some like mouth facial issues that got in the way and a tongue tie and that kind of thing. Okay. she did, she did the whole chest to chest thing with me and, and I had pumped before she was born. And so I had a little colostrum. So we like fed her with Q-tips and syringes and yeah. And basically we had hospice on board already. Um, and we were expecting that basically she would probably live like a couple weeks. So that's about how long it takes, uh, when you don't have proper, basically when you're in kidney failure, Mm. luckily it's like a peaceful death in terms of how, I guess, choices to go. You just kind of peacefully, you're kind of sedated at the end. Even, you know, adults, I've seen adults in renal failure. Can you tell me, um, I read about it. This is called, can you please pronounce it? I'm going to butcher. Cornelia DeLange. Yes. So I had never heard about, read about anything until yesterday. Uh, She was not diagnosed until we actually sent out her genomic, like sequencing testing which is after she was born after she was born mm-hmm. yep so they sent out some of her blood they sent out our blood so they could compare and they sent it to like a children's hospital in california who was doing basically a genetic testing program okay i think we got the diagnosis like a week or two into life yeah and so then we just started learning all as much as we could about that of course the questions that i had when i was sitting down to read this and the questions that the podcast listeners will probably have. Is there any way to know that the baby has this before giving birth to the baby? No, not really. Um, There's certain features. So they have like what's called a phenotype that really a lot of those things are not apparent until they're born um, because it's a lot of like facial things. So like she had, you know, a small chin and thinner, flatter mouth. They tend to have a little bit more hair. So, like, she was born with a full head of hair, <laughs> um, a little bit of a unibrow. You know, just small ears, small uh-huh. nose, button nose. That that genetic syndrome, it's, it's a syndrome, so it's pretty wide in terms of, like, development and um, how severe it can be. So there's, like, really mild cases to really severe cases, like, even not having fully formed limbs or missing limbs, you know, and there's different genes that are affected. We had the most common version, which is the NIPBL gene. You know, after later testing, we found out it was what's called de novo, which means... Just she had it. Uh, neither of us were carrying a gene. Really? So just another round of bad luck. <laughs> they knew something was going on. They knew it wasn't normal, but the kidney was the, probably the biggest indicator that it wasn't. You knew what you were in for. Funny enough, um, the kidney problem 
actually ended up being outside of the scope of Cornelia DeLange. Interesting. They can have genitourinary problems, but um, not usually to that severity, not like born with kidney failure or a dysplastic kidney, which is what she had. They couldn't really explain that. It wasn't until later in my story that, that we got more information about that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, so she went home with us on hospice, immediately started peeing diapers like a totally normal newborn. Yep. So you're like starting to become hopeful. Yeah. Okay. We had hospice support, which meant like a nurse came out and we had a doctor assigned and they made sure we had meds in case we needed to help her out if she was in pain or anything. But we ended up not really like using many of those services other than to help us with like normal newborn care. Um, She was born three pounds, eight ounces. Wow. Yeah. So, and because we were, you know, palliative care with like a poor prognosis, we just totally bypassed the NICU, you know? Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Like definitely have been a NICU baby. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. No. So instead we just ran a home NICU. (laughs) Like it was like kind of ridiculous. But it was great. And honestly, I think she did a lot better because of that, because she spent just time with us. You were her incubator. Um, She 100% spent time on my chest or my husband's chest the first like week. Uh, We syringe fed her and, you know, she was on a tight schedule every three hours um, eating at least. And I had to uh, exclusively breast pump because of her feeding issues that I mentioned earlier. And so that was, that was a lot of work. I mean, we were deep in sleep deprivation with like a medically complex child and, Mm. but she was doing great. I mean, she was hitting all the normal like newborn marks. We had to like scramble to get enough like preemie clothes. I mean, she was swimming in preemie clothes. And so (laughs) people came out of the woodwork though. It was wonderful. The amount of support that we had and my family lives close and, his family was only an hour away and people stayed the night, you know, to let us get sleep. And, you know, my friend, my friend's baby was five and a half pounds. And I remember seeing this baby and I was like, wow, that is a tiny ass baby. (laughs) Now I'm thinking half that. That's basically half. Yeah. I don't even like, I know. So delicate. I can't even imagine. You saw some of her pictures. Um, yeah, but it's hard to it's hard to get the the scope of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah, I have this one picture of her like laying by herself in her crib. It's, it's really funny because she's so small, mm. like compared to the rest of the crib, just a blank, you know, mattress. And yeah, it's funny because you get used to it. Like at first, you know, for any parent, they're like, oh, my God, a tiny thing. Like, I'm going to break it. And then you just get used to it. And then she was like a normal size, like to the point where, you know, she met a couple of my other friends' babies and they looked like ginormous. Like, I didn't understand. I was like, why is your baby so large? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. So you just get used to it. I don't know. Like I said, I held my breath the entire pregnancy and I was just tired of holding my breath. And I... As soon as she was there, I just abandoned all, I don't know. I just poured myself into it. Uh I was like, whatever happens. Yeah. 
she did really good. Our goal was to get her to four weeks or one month of life. And then we would feel kind of like more confident that she was going to exceed expectations. Because really, if you know she was in kidney failure, it should have happened faster. We made it to that landmark. She was still technically too small to put in our car seat because <laughs> part of Cornelia DeLing is a, a slow growth curve. So they have like their own growth chart and it's incredibly slow. Mm, okay. We fed her as much as we could feed her and she wasn't <laughs> growing very quickly, slowly, but not very quickly. And our, our car seat went down to four pounds and she was like still not quite four pounds. <laughs> we got her into a pediatrician and we actually walked there. We walked like four miles to go to the pediatrician. Yeah. So we um, got in with the pediatrician, started seeing the specialists. You know, we figured we need to find out what her prognosis is uh, for real because she was not really doing what was expected for her disease process. And I think I would have beat myself up later if I didn't find out like the true state of her kidney function. So uh, we got her in with a GI specialist because of she had really bad reflux and feeding issues. And then we were just getting in to see the kidney specialist um, when she really started like turning, turning a corner and kind of going downhill, you know, because she had that heart defect, which honestly, she never really showed any signs of of having any problem with her heart. But she also had intestinal malrotation and her feeding issues um, made her more sick. And uh, we ended up having to put in an NG tube, which goes down her nose and into her stomach so that we could feed her. She got hospitalized for a whole week because of her, once we found out her kidney function, it was pretty bad and her electrolytes were sort of in dangerous levels. So they made us, made us go in and start doing like IV meds and all that and change her nutrition plan. She was breast milk, but you know, supplementing as well. She got sicker and sicker, like basically as, as soon as we started trying to intervene, she kind of went downhill. It happened pretty quickly. Uh, the second hospitalization, she, I think she aspirated and she couldn't breathe very well and she had fluid in her lungs. And so we had to rush her to the hospital at 4 a.m. And we didn't want to go down the route of being on a ventilator and all that jazz for her because we'd, we'd always wanted her to be comfortable. That, I mean, was the plan from the beginning. So yeah, um, basically... We got the we got the kidney doctors, the nephrologist, to finally like sort of own up to the fact that there there was nothing they could do except for like heroic measures that had one percent chance. Basically, involved like her being hospitalized for a whole year with like breathing and dialysis support. Wow! Wow! You know, because she was on a slow growth curve, like her only chance of survival would have been a kidney transplant and she wasn't going to grow <laughs> to the, like fast enough for them to put a adult sized kidney in her for like years and things couldn't come together. So yeah, we started feeling hopeful and then sort of started 
getting more and more information and um, having to accept kind of back where we started. And this was a couple weeks, two, three weeks, three, four weeks. She lived for nine weeks. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So longer than anyone expected. Mm -hmm. And then we brought her home with hospice and she passed away at home, which is um, how, how we wanted, you know, her to feel comfortable. So I'm so sorry. Thank you. And you had just told me at the beginning of the story that that moment when she passed away was almost a year ago. Yep. She was born in May, 2020 and she passed away at the end of July. So, (sighs) wow. So it's been a year. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I didn't know about the first pregnancy and (laughs) I knew yesterday about the second. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. I had lots of surprises in store for you tonight. <laughs> I actually prefer it this way because, you know, I'm hearing it for the first time and um, it's just gut wrenching. It's gut wrenching. And um, yeah, it's become a lot easier to talk about basically with therapy. At first, it felt like a black hole, you know, that that I was like afraid to even take the first step into, uh, to grieve, you know, how, when, I don't know, when you're a teenager and you have a breakup and you have that, like, just guttural crying episode where you're just like, let it all go, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. real heart wrenching crying. I was like too afraid to do that because I thought I would never come up for air again. Oh my goodness. I mean, I can't imagine a lot of the things that happened. I have, pretty consistent anxiety, mm-hmm. even with medication. Um, like I try to think of what it would have been like for me to be you in this, in that second pregnancy and then lack of better words for your worst nightmare to come true in a right. way, even though it was slightly different than the first time around and what did end up happening. It's beautiful. The story is, the story is, heart-wrenchingly beautiful like the Mm -hmm. that you got to meet her that you got to spend time but then you know the whole might is bigger when she's gone I can only imagine exactly yeah Yeah, exactly like I I wouldn't give that time back definitely not yeah it was totally worth getting to know her you know with my first pregnancy uh you know I grieved the idea the you know, he was a part of me. Um, we didn't name him too, by the way. Um, my daughter was Adrian and my first pregnancy was Ethan. Mm. Beautiful names. Thank you. And, but it was different with, with him, you know, I never got to meet him. So I didn't like get to know his sort of soul, um, before losing him. Mm-hmm. So it was different with Adrian because I got to know her and, you know, a lot of people did because I, I did choose to share um, my journey on social media. And I'm kind of surprised that I did, but I glad in retrospect because she really touched a lot of people. Mm. 
just writing about her week to week because I would pretty much um, post like a weekly update and a picture and that kind of thing. And it was pretty amazing how many people reached out or could, you know, identify in some way or be supportive. You know, people were praying for her in Ireland. <laughs> like it was, mm-hmm. it was crazy. Um, grief is like a whole topic on its own, but, uh, therapy was very helpful. You know, I did weekly for a long time. Uh, I went back to work too soon. Although I don't really know like when's a appropriate time to go back to work after that. (laughs) I sort of had, had to at some point, you know, you know, no one really tells you like how much grief can cognitively affect you. You sort of feel like you're operating in like this cloud. Mm. Yeah. I didn't feel great about performance. Like I was, you know, getting by, I was doing, I was doing a good enough job, but I was not being the doctor I wanted to be. So I did end up uh, going on some antidepressants and that helped a lot. Just kept doing therapy. And honestly, it was just work and time and talking about it. I cannot imagine now that I am a mom I think about people who lost the, who lose their children at any stage of life, whether it's when they're really young, like yours, or uh, my friend, she lost her boyfriend at the age of 25 and his parents, yeah. you know, type of thing. And, or just, just any parent that loses a child who buries a child. Yeah. Now that I'm a mom, the idea of that, it, it makes me feel like I wouldn't survive. I say to myself, I, I wouldn't survive. I wouldn't like that's, I'm sure I would change in the process, but the thought of that makes me think that there's, you know, yeah, I don't know how people do it. I know it's funny. Cause like everyone says, I can't imagine, but the truth is that they can, if they've gotten to a place, they can say that because you know, you're an empathetic human being. So like you can, place yourself in my shoes and, and think. Well, it's both because, you know, like it's so hard to understand how you, how a human would be able to, to go through that unless you're in that position. But Mm -hmm. then also I have a daughter and if for some reason, like she's here and then she's not. Right. I I don't know how I would survive that, to be honest. So I listened to your story. You said the whole topic of grief, it should be a whole miniseries, which by the way, I think that's what's happening on this podcast. <laughs> Maybe like we'll come up for air in a couple of weeks and we'll go back to right. more normal, like baby raising topics. But I don't know. I think it's important to talk about, I think it's totally normal what you said to not know how you would survive. It's very normal to go to a dark place where you're like, why bother? You know, that's part of the grief stages. And you just, you know, I've read a fair amount, um, trying to sort of wrap my head around certain things. And you learn that grief is not really something that you complete, that you just sort of endure. And it really changes who you are because you have to learn how to live your life after the loss. Mm -hmm. Like you find new meaning and not like why there was a loss, but what you want to do like what what do you want the rest of your life to look like and you have to think about all those things I mean there's not a lot of 
times where you, you stop like that and you say, what am I doing? You know, how do I, how do I want to proceed from here? Yeah. Because it's, it's a life altering. It's a life altering event. There's not a lot of things that are that life altering. Right. Mend a couple good books. Oh, if, please. If that might help somebody else. There's a book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And that's by Megan Devine. And there's a book um, that I haven't finished reading, but it's called Finding Meaning, The Sixth, Sixth Stage of Grief by David Kessler. And he's one of the people who, you know, invented that whole like five stages of grief thing. Everybody mis- misused it. So he felt like he needed to go back and talk about the sixth stage, which is finding meaning in the rest of your life, mm-hmm. finding meaning after the loss. Yeah, we've done a lot of like nice memorial things and donations and like I donated my breast milk, little things that help make it feel like uh, her presence is living on. And so that's important to me. Yeah, I'll take her with me wherever I go. I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but I'm going to say it again because it's new to me. Uh, You're incredibly brave to want to even share your story and um, do it in a public way. <laughs> it leaves you vulnerable in a way, but uh, you know, you're, you're, you seem to be such a strong individual as, as is my friend Helen and Erica who have also done the same with their stories of loss. Yeah. There's a lot of strong people out there. You don't really like notice until you go through something, but then you start picking them out. It's, I mean, even in my patients, there's so many different forms of trauma or loss or grief that people go through, like just horrific things that people endure. And it's, it's kind of amazing. It's really amazing. It's really amazing. So now you're a year outside of her passing. Yeah. You're practicing medicine. You are doing aerial. I am. Yeah. I was nicer to my body the second time around, partially because I was grieving. I was exercising, but not doing aerial until like six months postpartum. And then I went back to teaching at nine months. I'm the aerial program director at FlyFit here in small town, Kalamazoo, Michigan. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, luckily I had trained, you know, instructors to be teaching. And so they kind of held things together (laughs) while I wasn't there and they were amazing. And I'm lucky to have a very supportive studio owner who has also been through things in different ways. And she gave me all the time I needed and I was glad. I came back and found my passion again because I was honestly a little afraid that I just like would not feel as much joy in things anymore. But I did. I'm, I'm back and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. So I alluded to it, but what we found out after like further genetic testing was that Adrian's kidney problems was actually probably due to these variants of unknown significance that were inherited by my husband and I. We each have one. And this was something that we got. I mean, we got tested for this like renal panel sort of like along the way. We each have a mutation like one copy of our gene has a mutation of this on the same gene. And both of our kids got both of ours. Don't ask me what the statistics are for that. Cause like, 
Well, I can't imagine it's very common that a couple gets together and they both have this gene. Right. Well, and they're different variants. They're just on the same gene. Okay. Technically, it should be 25% or less. You would get one of each from the parent if it's autosomal recessive. Um, But that happened twice in a row. So like the first baby, they think that's why uh, he had renal agenesis. And then the second with Adrian, they think that's why she had the kidney failure, which was totally separate from the CDLS. Yeah, we are just a bag of genetic problems. (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, Okay. Wow. But the silver lining to all of this, yay science, is that we are embarking on an IVF journey. Ah. Yeah, so there's light at the end of the tunnel. Okay. Yes, we had the geneticist was working with the research lab at MSU. They've decided they think these variants are promising enough that they are willing to, testing lab is willing to do pre-implantation genetic testing for these variants. Oh my God. Yep. This is amazing. Probably going through the process at the end of the year, like egg retrieval and embryo making, and then checking those embryos to make sure that there's no variants and there's no CDLS and hopefully no other like major. And then you can have like quadruplets and be done. (laughs) No, they actually only put in one. Okay. (laughs) I was like, no, I am not signing up for twins. Like I do... I do want this family planning thing to like end with hopefully two kids, but I don't think I want them both at the same time. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like back in the day with the uh, Octomom, like I don't like I think back to that. I was not a mom back then. I was like, oh, this is a hilarious story, and I'm like, that is that is like not even possible. I don't understand. My bean did not sleep the first year of her life. I would have. Oh my god. I would have just cracked as a person, like if, if it was two of those, because you would never sleep and then you would go crazy, literally. <laughs> Anyways, I'm, I'm glad there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we're going to give you good juju, like the worldwide aerial community is going to yeah. give you good juju for your uh, IVF journey. Um, Helen, actually, you'll hear it even though it's not out right now, it, it'll come out right before yours, uh, that she went on an IVF journey successfully as well. And then had a baby naturally after that, after all the stress. Then they had a baby naturally after that. So you have two. Rebecca, I thank you with all of my heart. And I always say, uh, man, I'm going to have a lot of friends after I'm done producing this podcast because I'm not really one to like go out, meet new people, you know? It's lovely. It's funny how small of a place the aerial community is. And yeah. You know, I got to know April because of that Ariel Mamas group. And she actually followed all during Adrian's life and was like private messaging me. And uh, April's the sweetest. She's so sweet. I know. She's so sweet. You know, I've met so many people just sharing my story. It's it's awesome. I had a little bit of imposter syndrome, actually, when you asked me to do this podcast. I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? I'm not famous in the Ariel community. I don't. I'm not a professional. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that that is not really the requirement. Although, although uh, there's going to be a mix, not to sensationalize your story. But if I were like a reporter, mm-hmm. um, I look back at like me just 
you know, reaching out to you because you do Ariel and you're a doctor and I've never had a doctor. (laughs) Just a, you know, primary care doctor. I'm like, oh, that's a good like diversity. I got a lot more than I bargained for. Yeah, you did. That was was a lengthy, lengthy story. I made notes because I was like, how am I gonna like get this down to podcast time? Like this is a long story. You don't have to because editing is magical. Fancy. Yeah. Uh, No, I totally got more than I bargained for from an editorial standpoint. (laughs) And and the world got the benefit of of hearing your completely brave and wrenching and beautiful, beautiful story. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Rebecca for being here, being vulnerable and sharing with us her incredible story. Just a reminder in the show notes, there's a link for registration for my free mini course, 10 chapters of really great information, free for you guys. All you have to do is sign up for the student portal and you can access it. Thanks so much to Asa Watkins for post-production. And if you will honor me with the five-star rating and review anywhere you get your podcasts, it really helps others find me more easily. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Expecting Aerialist podcast. Is that your bean? The bean has woken up (laughs) and she gives me this why, like, dare leave leave me in there. (laughs) What are you thinking? Like... Like, like, uh, astonished that I would mm-hmm. go in the other room. Actual name, I just know her as Bean from all your points. I know. <laughs> uh, her full name is Willa May Watkins. Oh, Willa. That's pretty. Willa May, or as my parents like to say, May May. <laughs>